If you'll turn your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We've been looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians and Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church and his encouragement to them, his joy because of them, his prayers for them. He has been so very grateful to God for what God has done in their lives, for their testimony of faith, their labor of love, for their steadfastness of hope. He has also been defending his ministry, and here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he says to them these words, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we might be people who excel still more. And Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There's a woman named Wilma Rudolph. She was the 20th child of 22 children. She was born prematurely, Doctors didn't expect her to survive, but she did. By the age of four, she contracted double pneumonia and scarlet fever, and it left her left leg paralyzed. She learned to walk with the aid of a metal brace on her leg, and when she was nine years old, she removed the leg brace and began to walk without it. By the age of 13, she developed a rhythmic walk, That same year, she decided to begin running. She entered her first race, and she came in last. For the next three years, she came in dead last in every single race that she ran. But she kept on running, and one day, she won. Eventually, the little girl who was not supposed to live and then was not supposed to be able to walk would win three gold medals in Rome's 1960 Olympic Games. The average person would have conceded that life was going to be difficult. It was going to be less than normal. The average person would never have considered that they would have an extraordinary life nor try for one. And perhaps the average person would have looked at their disability and said to themselves, that's just how I am. I am this way. It's a hindrance, it's an obstacle, rather than a challenge to overcome, rather than saying, by the grace of God, I can excel, they would perhaps use it as a crutch. We concede to spiritual mediocrity in the same way, rather than striving for the excellence that God has set out for us, the good works which he has planned for us to do. But why is it that some grow? Why is it that some strive? And why is it some achieve far more than others? Why do some musicians and athletes, for example, excel while others remain mediocre? In his book, The Social Animal, David Brooks points to current research that reveals the common denominator for attaining excellence in a field. And it is a long-term 
commitment to discipline and practice. He writes, In 1997, Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they were picked out to learn musical instruments. Some went on to become fine musicians and others faltered. McPherson searched for the traits that separated those who progressed from those who did not. IQ was not a good predictor. Neither were aural sensitivity, math skills, income, or a sense of rhythm. The best single predictor was a question that McPherson asked the students before they even selected their instruments, and it was this. How long do you think you will play? How long do you think you will play? The students who planned to play for a short time did not become very proficient. The students who planned to play for a few years had modest success. But there were some children who said, in effect, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play my whole life. Those children soared. And the same would be true for a growing Christian who approaches discipleship in the same way, <coughs> saying, I want to be like Jesus, or I want to love others. I want to study the Word of God so I can become proficient throughout my entire life, or I want to edify others and build up others. I want to teach others, knowing that that might be 10 years, 20 years down the road, they have a long-term vision for their life of what God has placed before them. A person who says, I'm going to grow up and be a person who touches the world will be a person who will have a great impact. We've examined the first three chapters here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've seen Paul express his gratitude. We've seen Paul defend his ministry. We've seen Paul express his love for the Thessalonians. And now he comes to them and he says, you're doing all of these things well. I want you to excel still more. I want you to excel still more. That is the main thought in the first two verses of this particular passage of text in which he encourages them to go beyond where they are at. And in this particular section, he begins in chapters 4 and 5 to address various subjects, various issues, the bulk of which he had already talked about in the first three chapters. He begins by telling them, we request and exhort of you that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. They had been standing firm in the faith. They had been laboring in love. They had been walking with God. They had been doing it all to please the Lord. And Paul encourages them with the idea that they were to continue to excel still more. It's like a coach. I remember playing in various situations where there would be a coach who would just continue to encourage, who would tell us that we needed to continue to work hard and to strive, no matter how tired we were, to make us do lines, to push us beyond where we were so that we could excel. And that's a coach's job. That is a coach's job. And Paul tells the Thessalonians here in the first chapter to excel still more. Merriam-Webster defines excel as to be better than others, to do better than others, or to be superior, or to suppress an accomplishment or achievement. The related word excellence in the American Heritage Dictionary defines it as a state or quality or condition of excelling, superiority. 
to excel, is to do better than, to surpass, or to surpass others. That's how the word excel and excellence are defined. It suggests this concept of going beyond a limit or a standard. But many of these particularly particular definitions are related to being better than someone else in a comparative sense. And while competition is good, it brings out greater performance, is that what the scriptures tell us to when it tells us to excel, to be better than someone else? Well, the Bible and the biblical definition of what it means to excel is sometimes translated in the New Testament as the word abound, according to a Greek lexicon, Lonida, it means, quote, a degree which is considerably in excess of some point on an implied or explicit scale of extent. Very great, excessive, extremely emphatic, surpassing, all the more greater. And it simply means to move beyond a point where you are at to some greater place. Where they were walking was good. How they were walking was good. What they desired was good, but they needed to move beyond that, and Paul encourages them. And the difference between a worldly definition and that which is a biblical definition all revolves around one's motive and one's goal. One's motive and one's goal. But the world says if you want to excel, you compare yourself to somebody else, and you're superior to them, you have done well. Whereas... The motive that Paul presents here, presents here is wholly different. The motive is a godly motive by which we want to excel. And the motive that he reiterates to them, which they are already doing, is that of obedience and pleasing God. Of obedience and pleasing God. It is a godly motive. The motive by which we're to excel is to please God by obedience, to excel for God's glory, to excel for his praise. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, as you already know, it says, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, that is obedience, and please God, or to bring glory to God. And Paul writes this as a, as a request, not as a command. He requests it of them, he exhorts them, he strongly encourages them as a coach would remember all that you have been taught, do the fundamentals well. Continue to live in obedience to please God. Don't settle for mediocrity. As Eric Liddell, the Olympic writer and runner in Chariots of Fire, said, In the dust of defeat, as well as the laurels of victory, there is a glory to be found if one has done his best. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Win or lose is Not the point. The point is that there is glory to be found when one does it for the glory of God, and God is the one who provides victory or not. We feel the Lord's pleasure when we seek to please God. One author writes, quote, because of who Christians are in Christ, because of our eternal hope, and because of the enabling grace of God available to all believers in Christ, seeking to do our best and choosing what is best is part of God's will and an evidence of genuine spiritual growth and maturity, end quote. It is a good thing to strive, a good thing to excel, a good thing to please God. The scriptures reiterate this 
in Colossians chapter 1. If you turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, back a book or two, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The Scriptures, as Paul writes, for this reason also in Colossians 1, 9, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What's our motivation then? To excel, to excel still more. It is to please God, to do our best to please the Lord. Now, the Bible is replete with the encouragement to excel or to abound. And this morning, I want to take some time to look at the various times that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes and encourages the church to abound or to excel still more, to go beyond where they're at. This is what he repeats to the Thessalonian church. And so we will look at a number of passages. The first is back in chapter 3, verse 12, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, verse 12 of chapter 3, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. We're to be people who excel in love for one another and for all people, just as we do for you. The word abound means to overflow, overflow in love for others, for all people, not just those that are in the body of Christ, as it says, abound in love for one another and for all people, to love people. Thessalonians were already loving their brothers and sisters, but even in, in mentions in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. There's always room, though, to increase and to love others even more, to love people who are different, to love people whom you may not click with, to love people who are, think differently than you to be people-oriented, to love people because you love God. Paul's desire is the same for the Philippians, that they would know what godly love is. Godly love is unlike what the world promotes as love. You see, when Jesus wanted to illustrate the world's love and godly love, he said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were telling the people, you shall love your neighbor. And they would define neighbor as the Pharisees would say, you love your neighbor, and your neighbor is your Pharisee. Or they would say that your neighbor is your fellow Jew. But you can hate the Gentile. The Essenes would say, well, you love your neighbor. Your neighbor is your fellow Essene or whomever it might be. And others you don't have to love. That is what he meant when he said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? This may not be natural for us to be inclined to love our enemies, because of the love of God, we are able to love those who may not like us, may hate us, 
may mistreat you? How do you respond? Do you become angry? Do you shut them out? Or do you love them as well? The implication is that it doesn't matter whether or not they know God. We are to love them and to show them kindness, to show them consideration, to show them the love of God in order to win them to Christ. It is the mark of a Christian to love others. It is particularly a mark of a Christian to love other Christians. The Apostle John writes the book of 1 John. He writes the book of 1 John, the letter, in order that the church might be able to discern those who are false teachers, those who are false teachers. And one of the marks he writes about is whether or not somebody loves other believers. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, a person, if there is a hatred of somebody else who is a believer, they cannot claim to be a Christian. They hate their brother. They hate somebody. Maybe it's somebody that you can even think of. You just do not have any love for them. You just hate them. They are a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God. It doesn't matter what they say. They can say, well, I, I've received Christ. I'm a Christian. I just hate so-and-so. They are a liar. That person is not saved. That person doesn't know God. And John writes the letter so that they might know, whoever reads the letter might know who is and who is not a part of the Christian community, part of the family of God. No matter how much people may rub us the wrong way, no matter how much people may be different than we are, no matter what their background is, we are to abound, excel in love for others. That is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Secondly, we see the word used by Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he says this in verse 9, And I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This is to be in addition to love. Your love may abound more and more. And in two things in particular, one is in real knowledge and one is in discernment. And the knowledge that is spoken of here in the book of Philippians that they are to abound in, to excel in, is the Word of God, is true knowledge. doesn't mean intellectual knowledge about any old thing. It is about the knowledge of the Word of God. One writer writes about our desire to know, to learn, is not merely for the idea, not just for the sake of knowing more, it is for the goal of knowing God knowing God. He writes, the objective of knowing God should supersede even the desire to know his word. That desire is simply the means of knowing the God of the word. If gaining more information about the Bible and participating in spiritual activities, praying, witnessing, serving, are not linked to the desire to know God better, they will not bring spiritual growth to those who profess faith in Christ. 
That's the motive, to know the God of the Word, to know the author of the Word. Seeking to know the Word of God, we want to know God better. If you were to receive a love letter from someone and you were to dissect it all and say how wonderful the words are, how it flows, and look up the meanings of all the words and to exemplify the idea that this is a really nice piece of literature, then you've missed the entire heart behind why it was written, the person who wrote the letter to you. Even when we began our series on the attributes of God in Sunday school, the goal in theology wasn't to accumulate knowledge or to build some sort of theological ivory tower or to speculate on things that are unknown about God. The goal is and was to know our God by knowing what He is like, to know the attributes of our God, because your worship of God is going to be in proportion to your knowledge of who God is. Your worship of God and your prayers to God will only be as great or as shallow as your knowledge of God. If you have a small view of God, then your prayers will be small and your requests will be small and your worship will be superficial. And you'll say that, you know what, I've come in order to, you know, listen to whatever it might be that might be superficial as opposed to knowing and thinking deep thoughts about the person of God. Even when you read the, the Scriptures, I love the Old Testament because so much of it is narrative, and New Testament is narrative as well, but much of the Old Testament, you see the heart of God as God responds to sin, as He responds to that which is good, and you place yourself within the picture of that narrative, and you see the heart of God behind what He has written, as well as the principle by which we learn from the examples that are there. We see how God responds and hates sin, and we see how God loves the things that He loves. Jeremiah 9, 24 tells us that the Lord says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, nor the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he what? Understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight on these things. If you want to brag, brag that you understand and you know God, he says. Don't brag about the fact that, you know what, oh, I have so much, or I'm wise, or I'm strong, he says. True knowledge is the knowledge of who God is and the person behind the Word of God, not the data that is there. So I encourage you, even in the summertime, to take advantage of the summer, to know more about who God is and the author that has written this book to us, to remind others of what the Word of God says. Secondly, in Philippians, we're to abound not only in love and in knowledge, but in discernment, in discernment, in real knowledge and all discernment, because the two are going to be bound hand in hand. Discernment has, comes from the word aesthesis. It's the source of our English word aesthetic. You know, when you look at something, it looks aesthetically pleasing. Well, this is the opposite of that because aesthetically pleasing has to do with the idea that uh, we have personal tastes, personal preferences in which we like something or not. But this particular word focuses rather on achieving mature insight and understanding, discriminating a high level of biblical, theological, moral, and spiritual perception. It implies the right application of that knowledge. The discernment that comes 
in real knowledge of God's revelation that produces godly living. A person who is discerning is discriminating when it comes to doctrinal and theological truth. They have an understanding of what the Scriptures say in relationship to what is true. Paul warns the church against not knowing. He talks about the maturity of the church in Ephesians 4, 13. We all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, when we are mature, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Discernment and knowledge go hand in hand. You cannot be discerning about what you don't know. If the Scriptures teach something, it is by the Word of God and by a, by, by a mind that thinks. Martin Luther, when he was summoned to the Diet of Worms in 1521, when he asked about recanting, he replied, unless I'm convinced by the Scriptures and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. It is the knowledge and the understanding of the Word of God and clear thinking that results in discernment of right and wrong. And the Westminster Confession of Faith recognizes that formula of Scripture and sound reason when it states, quote, the whole counsel of God is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Scripture and clear thinking. Because you see today, people discern what is true by various means. They discern what is true by their feelings, for example. Some use a rather mystical approach, and they say, well, to know what the Word of God says, you, you empty your mind, and you let the Spirit of God just bring thoughts into your mind, and that's how you know what the Bible says. Others will discern truth by a philosophy of pragmatism. Whatever works, whatever works for you, whatever is most practical, whatever is the greatest benefit, whatever seems right to me, I'll do regardless of whatever the Scriptures say as an abiding principle. Then there are others who may not go for a mystical approach or a pragmatic approach, but they go and say, you know what, it is all in shades of gray, spectrum of gray. And the author of Reckless Faith, when the church loses its will to discern, he writes, contrast today's Christian, Christians who soothe themselves with the opinion that few things are really black and white. Doctrinal issues, moral questions, and Christian principle are cast in hues of gray. No one is supposed to draw any definitive lines or declare any absolutes. Every person is encouraged to do what is right in his own eyes, exactly what God forbade. And it feeds into our postmodern culture very much so, where there are no absolutes. Still others really approach the Christian life and the Bible's truths just carelessly, or an undiscerning attitude. I've met Christians, Christians who are, who are even biblically trained through a Bible school that are happy listening to prosperity gospel teachers, not knowing what they teach. Some don't care. They don't care about how the image of God relates to the issues 
of euthanasia or capital punishment or the role of husbands and wives or how it relates to suicide. Some don't care about the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture and how it relates to helping people. Some don't care about the attributes of God and how the attributes of God have import to deal with our fears and our insecurities, with our anxiety, with our OCD issues, quote-unquote. Many people simply do not care about biblical truth and thinking deeply about the implications of applying the truth to life, not discerning what is true, not discerning what teachers will teach. To say this is biblical or that's not biblical isn't the most popular thing these days. And there are all sorts of unbiblical ideas that are floating around out there that Christians will say. You've got to love yourself if you're going to love others, they'll say. Or you've got to forgive yourself first. Or here's another one. There's no such thing as hell where people will suffer. Or reading what Jesus supposedly said in verbatim and writing it down, even if it doesn't square with the Word of God. And when you say something is not biblical, there oftentimes pushback. You're being unloving by saying, oh, gosh, that's not Is that biblical? Or maybe you're being critical. But it is critical in a good way because a person who is discerning, discerning is discriminating by what is true from what is not, that one is not blown about by every wind of doctrine, everything that everyone will say. It is loving to speak what is true. It is loving to speak the truth in love. And we're to abound, as it says in Philippians 1, in love, in knowledge, in discernment. And then the word is also used in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, to abound in building up the church. Building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. The Corinthian church was a church that was rife with division, was rife with people who were misusing their spiritual gifts. They sought the more, 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 uh, more showy gifts like tongues or prophecy, and they were zealous about spiritual gifts. And Paul said, if you're zealous about spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification, for the building up of the church. In other words, your gifts aren't only to be used when for yourself. They're not only to be used for the, the things that, 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 you know, might be whatever. You're to use your gifts for the edification of the church. Your gifts aren't to be used for yourself only. Sometimes we can. We say, well, I have the gift of, a, of knowledge or discernment, and you study and you enjoy. We're to be using those gifts for others. We have our gifts. Everyone who is a part of the body of Christ has been given spiritual gifts. And we're to use those for the building up of the body. We're to use those to serve one another. You have the gift of teaching, then we are to be people who are teaching rightly the Word of God to one another. We have the gift of helps or the gift of knowledge or the gift of evangelism or whatever your spiritual gift may be. Paul says, use it for the building up of the body. Not just for, oh, the people that I like or whoever it may be. Use it for the building up of the body. Never tire of serving the Lord. 
Sometimes when people who have served the Lord for some time, they look back and they look back at the past and they reminisce. Yeah, they'll say, I, I used to do that. I used to serve 15, 20, 30 years ago. But Paul says here, excel still more. Don't look back and say, oh, those are things I used to do and check them off as if it's no longer me. I'm no longer going to be using my gifts. Let somebody who is younger do it. Let somebody who has more energy do it. Let somebody who is not whatever it may be. No, God uses everyone in whatever capacity there is that adds to the building up the body. I can't imagine any of the apostles saying, you know, I'm not going to serve the Lord for a few years. I'll just take a long camel ride to Egypt. And maybe I'll come back and see how the church is doing later. Or maybe when I get older, Lord, I'm only 35. I'll, I'll just wait until I'm 65, and maybe I'll think about serving then. That's not how a musician or one who is a part of sports excels when they have a vision to being excellent. No, they have a lifelong vision. Those are the ones that will excel and succeed. So be fully vested in using your gifts for the building up of the body. Paul uses that word to abound, to excel in, in our faith, in our love, our knowledge, our discernment. Then in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he says this, but just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Paul tells the Corinthians in faith and the things that you say, their knowledge, and all earnestness. And by the way, that word utterance has to do with doctrine, logos. You abound in everything, in faith, in doctrine, in knowledge. Abound in everything, in the gracious work. Abound in this gracious work. They were also to abound in the Second Corinthians 8 in their giving. In their giving. In the things that they were to give to others. There was an offering that was going to be taken for the church in Jerusalem. And everything Paul says you abound to do what you can to the best of your ability to press on. As Philippians 3.13, Paul writes, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's to strive to be all that God has called us to be. The question is, do we press on to excel? When we look at this summer, do we have plans, plans to grow, plans to know God more? Do we aim to be a better person by the time that summer has ended? Or do we decide this is time for vacation, a vacation from God, a vacation from church? Is that how we think? Or do we think, let's take advantage for my family, for myself, to grow, to excel still more. And just to underscore, it's not because we think we'll gain salvation, not because we think we'll gain the applause of people, not for the sake of some checklist so that we can think, oh, how much I've accomplished, not for the sake of our own affirmation, but with a genuine desire to please God and obedience. In the world of sports, if you want to be the best, you've got to be fully committed, fully devoted you know, our quarterback here of the Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson, he's been called a football junkie. 
Wilson, he's notorious for being the first player in the Seahawks office, sometimes beating out his early rising coach, Pete Carroll. After his first home loss against Arizona, he was back in the Seahawks practice facility already at 4.30 in the morning, reviewing game tape from the night before. And a motto that he lives by, taught to him by his father, the separation is in the preparation. The separation is in the preparation, which makes him strive to be the best, to be excellent, to excel. Quoted by USA Today, Wilson said, quote, The thing I believe in is just getting better every week. If I can do that, you give yourself a chance. I've got to be better than I was the last game of last year and keep going. That's the way I think. How does he do that? Through hard work, he says, watching tons of film, doing the same thing, being consistent in your approach, being clutch when you have to be, and trying to dominate the game when you can. Do you think that way when it comes to your spiritual life? That I want to be better than I was last week. That I want to be farther along than I was a few months ago, that I want to excel still more, that there are things I need to work on, and I have a goal in order to reach that through hard work, through doing things consistently, being consistent in my approach to spending time with God, to fellowship, and having the plans that will help me to excel still more and to rise above the level of mediocrity. That is what God calls us to. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We pray, Father, that even as these Thessalonians saw, Father, the encouragement from Paul, that they were loving people, that they were serving, that they were doing many good things, I pray, Father, that we, my people, might be people who excel, who continue to strive for your glory to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.